Today we move on in the Gospel of Matthew. We transition from Jesus' instruction to his disciples to the events and circumstances surrounding his ministry in those cities as he goes out. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. It states, When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. You could argue, should this verse be in chapter 10 or, or chapter 11? There were no chapters, right, when it was first written. So it wasn't a debate. It was a perfect transition. It went from 10 into 11. It, it was just carrying on the thought. And it really does help us to understand the context of the next passage that we're going to talk about today. The context is crucial for understanding our passage and understanding this passage that some have struggled with, the idea of uh, John questioning, John the Baptist questioning who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus just had finished or had just finished instructing the 12 apostles on what to expect in this time of proclaiming the kingdom is near. He told them, he instructed them, and this instruction to the 12, we don't know what, how long it was after that the events of 11 happened, but the instructions fit like a glove with what happens with John. They, they help to inform what might have been, John might have been thinking. Remember, we talked about how Jesus' message to his 12 disciples was counter to the normal thoughts of the day. Even the believers, those who were following Jesus, being a disciple of the king, it didn't make sense that there would be suffering and there would be rejection and not an easy life. It meant many would reject them and their message. That's what Jesus had said in that instructions in chapter 10. It meant division between families over their commitment to Jesus. It meant division, not peace. It meant difficulty and pain, not peace and tranquility. It meant the disciples would suffer. So it fits the hardship that John the Baptist is going through. He's in jail. And it would make sense in Jesus' new ordering of things... But it wouldn't make sense to John because did John hear the words of chapter 10? No, he didn't. He's in jail. So he needed some of the same truths, didn't he? We'll talk about this as we go along. John wasn't even there. John the Baptist, that is. He was suffering under persecution. He had announced the Messiah was a, that had arrived and he was arrested. He was arrested because he was calling people to repentance. And one of the people that he was calling to repentance was who? Herod. And that got him in trouble. I believe John knew Jesus was the Messiah. That wasn't the debate. But he was having a hard time reconciling his circumstances with the arrival of the Messiah. He was having, I'm in jail. I announced the Messiah. Why am I in jail? Why does this why why is this happening? Wait a second. Have you read your Old Testament? We'll talk about that as we go along. Remember we talked last week how God's ways often don't register with our expectations. Isn't that right? 
We might not think difficulties and rejections will be associated with being the king's ambassador. The disciples of Jesus probably had a hard time reconciling this with the Messiah also. Add to this, read your Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets. And it can present this some questions in our hearts. What? Unmet expectations are normal, you read the Old Testament. Now think about this for a second. We're going in our devotions. We just finished this week. Uh, Joshua. Went through Joshua. But I want you to think, just think about the heroes of the Old Testament for a second. Let's just go through a, a review briefly of a few. Abraham. What happens with Abraham? Well, Abraham, Lot's captured, remember? And what does Abraham do? A bunch of armies are destroyed. Abraham takes his little band and he goes and what? Slaughters them and takes Lot back. Victory. No problem. You mess with Abraham, what happens? You get in trouble. Anyone who blesses Abraham and his descendants will be blessed. Anybody who curses Abraham and his descendants will be cursed. Abraham is like everything's flowing and everything's going great. Even when Jacob's being deceptive, what happens? He flourishes. People come against him. It doesn't matter. He flourishes. How about Moses? How well did he do with Egypt? (laughs) Yeah. It was all victory, wasn't it? The plagues happen. Fire. Parts the Red Sea. Even when the children of Israel being wicked, God still brings blessing on them. Feeds them, takes care of the clothes. Moses is leading, and he's leading with victory, even though they're not always faithful. Moses is a conqueror, isn't he? Was Moses a forerunner of Christ? Did he point forward to Christ? I believe so. How about Joshua? I love reading Joshua this week. Wasn't it exciting? As we read through and we saw... Everywhere Joshua went, there was victory after victory after victory. And they were powerful displays of God's power and might, destroying all the enemies. The only thing that kept them from destroying all the enemies and doing it all was their own wimpy hearts at times, or they make covenants when they shouldn't, or they didn't seek God when they shouldn't, should have. And then there's David. When you read the story of David. How many of you get excited when you read the story of David and Goliath? <laughs> Everybody was afraid, but David goes out and slays him. That's a king for Israel, right? Were these guys forerunners of the Messiah? Yeah. They were forerunners. They were guys that were pointing forward. In a way, their lives pointed to a Messiah, a king to come that would be powerful and would avenge, and would bring fire down, right? And the Old Testament prophets, I don't know about you guys, but as you're reading through the prophets, are you, did you see it even in our, our passage today? Numerous times it points to victories that will come for Israel and for her servant king. He will be a powerful king. And the governments will rest upon his shoulders. There are many places where God proclaims, He will come and reign over all the nations, and all those who oppress Israel will be eliminated. 
He will bring out about a great wrath. Let's look at a few. I know, I'm going to make you read your Bible a little bit today, but let's do it. Look over at Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. The prophet says, look at this. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will, or taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and the half of the, half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As when he fights on the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to the Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Has this happened yet? No. But what do you think John was thinking sitting in prison? Do you think he knew his Old Testament Bible? Oh, absolutely. He's like... I know the Messiah, the coming one. He's the Lord God who is coming. It's going to take care of this Herod. This Herod's goner. He's come up against the forerunner of the Messiah. That's who I am. I'm pronouncing the Messiah. Look over at Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. 13.9. In 13.9 it states, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Herod's going to go down. You can almost see, you can almost think, John the Baptist would be doing what? He'd be doing what we do, which is what? Taking Old Testament or New Testament passage and we kind of implant ourselves there, don't we? And he will exterminate its sinners from it for the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Who was proud in John's life? Herod. (laughs) Right? And abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man's scarcer than pure gold. (laughs) And mankind like the gold of Oprah. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place. At the fury of the Lord of hosts. In the day of his burning anger, and it will be like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people, 
and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through. Anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones will also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Wow. There's many of these passages. I'm just giving you a few. Read your Old Testament. Read those prophets. What are you going to see? There's coming a day of what? Wrath and vengeance. And it will be the coming one that will accomplish this. The expected one will do this. Joel 2. One, one more. No, two more. Joel 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is what? Coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. Take note, fire and flames. What did John the Baptist say? He will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With the noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people angered for battle, arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish. All places turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his paths when, when they burst through the defenses. They do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Answer, no one. And John the Baptist sits in prison. And the Messiah was here. And he says, where is this coming? I'm about to die. He doesn't know how he's going to die, but he's going to get his head severed. And brought to some pagan king. Finally, look at Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, the day that is coming. 
so that it will leave their ne- their, them neither root nor branch. But you f- who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will... They will be ash under the soles of your feet in that day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in the Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the father to their children and their hearts of their children to their fathers. What? I thought there was peace and... Wait! No, 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 no! Wait! Do you see this? This is almost a direct contradiction to what? What Jesus said. It seems to be almost a direct contradiction. I came to bring a sword, father against mother, or father against son, mother against father. But here he says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. How do you reconcile this? You think John was having a problem? I'd have a problem. If I knew my Old Testament, I'd have a very difficult problem. And these are just some of the passages in the Old Testament. I just gave you a, what, four or five? The Lord's coming is associated often in the Old Testament prophecies with wrath, fire, judgment, restoration of Israel, and the land blossoming. The Messiah didn't look like, in John's view, it didn't look like the coming of the Lord. Which was prophesied in the Old Testament as first advent. Jesus didn't act like the coming of the Lord, at least the way these passages reveal it. In fact, Jesus spoke of suffering and persecution. Now, to be fair, there are passages that talk about his suffering, right? There are, Isaiah 53. But are there as many? I could make a strong case that there's less of those and much more of the wrathful ones. Read your Old Testament Bible and you won't, you'll come to the same conclusion. They're there, but a lot less. Now, how many of you read the Bible and, how many of you, be honest, read the Bible and pick out the parts that you really like? And you have a tendency to interpret the world with the ones that you really like. Ooh. This is why we have to be very, very careful of how we apply prophecy to our world. Do you hear me, beloved? Or be very careful. (laughs) I'm fairly sure that part of what John's problem was is that his presuppositions of what passages in the Old Testament applied to his day were wrong. But he's a prophet. How did he get this wrong? Beloved... (laughs) Why do you think the apostles and all of them had such a struggle all the way to the end? Peter's thinking, what? I can take them. I can take them. A sword? Get it to me. Let's take Jerusalem. 
Somehow he thought he was part of the righteous army that was going to invade Jerusalem, maybe. <laughs> what are we talking about? It's called taking our presuppositions, our, our expectations, and imposing them onto the Bible and onto God's providential ways. Every one of us are guilty of this. Jesus talked of the, his enemies having an outward appearance of winning. He talks about his disciples dying. There were some passages that mentioned the coming one suffering, yes, in the Old Testament, but arguably less than the number that talked about his wrath. One commentator stated it this way. Listen, the th thematically, the three chapters, Matthew 11 to 13, are held together by the rising tide of disappointment in and opposition to the kingdom of God that was resulting from Jesus' ministry. He was not turning out to be the kind of Messiah the people had expected. Even John the Baptist had doubts from 2, verse 2 to 19. And the Galileans, the Galilean cities that were sites of most of Jesus' miracles hardened themselves in unbelief, even though they were seeing miracles. Why? Because the Messiah, the God they had in their own mind, didn't fit the Jesus of the Bible. Ooh. I hope you get this point today, beloved. God is not the God that we make up in our minds. Jesus is not the Jesus that we often expect him to be. He is who he reveals himself to be in Scripture. Boy, that doesn't fit real good with our culture in our day, does it? most in our day say, I want a Jesus made like I want him to be. And what are we susceptible to? The same position John the Baptist was in. It makes suffering very difficult. Today as we dive in to an up-close look at John the Baptist, we need to remember this context. Jesus had told the disciples what they might have expected when Jesus arrived was backwards from what they might have expected. He had told them that in 10. But John the Baptist didn't have that information. It wasn't coming to make peace. Jesus wasn't coming to make peace. But what? Division and war. He was coming to separate the true followers from the unbelievers. And John was experiencing this rejection firsthand. So with this in mind, let's look at the forerunner's questions in light of unmet expectations. The forerunner's questions in light of unmet expectations. First, we will see the forerunner's questions, and then we will see the Messiah's answers. What will we learn today? We will learn we should seek answers from our Lord in His Word as we face trials in this age. We should seek, seek the Lord 
and what he reveals about himself in the scriptures, and that alone should be what informs us in our trials, not how we interpret the world or our expectations on how things should go. As we look at John the Baptist today, remember his context and the context of Jesus ministering to his disciples. John the Baptist was the perfect illustration of the words that Jesus had just said to the disciples. John was a disciple under fire. And he had many unanswered questions because the full revelation had not been made known to him. John was, in fact, facing execution for his commitment to the Lord. He was what? Going to die. John's question makes perfect sense in light of the context. So... Again, before we judge John the Baptist, we need to put ourselves in his seat, shoes, right? And we need to understand, what he asked makes perfect sense. How about that? Most of us would look at what John the Baptist asked and said, why is he doubting? I mean, wasn't he the forerunner? If we understand his context, we will then say, oh, I know why he asked that question. I get it. Here's the scary thing. I think we're a lot more like John than we think we are. <laughs> Everybody in this room, we're a lot more like him than we think we are. So let's look at the forerunner's question. Verse 2. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expectant one? Or shall we look for someone else? So John hears that Jesus was doing miracles and teaching in the cities. Word got to John. It, probably the disciples are going back and forth. They're telling what he's saying. They're telling what he's doing. There's like almost like he's in prison, so he's getting messages or, or words telling what's happening. And again, put yourself in John's sandals. You are in jail. He might have been barefoot. Because you were confronting a wicked ruler of Rome with his sin. You had your Old Testament scriptures. You read about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. How the coming one will bring wrath and judgment and restoration to Israel. Now, if you were in jail and you didn't have the New Testament, that's important. See, unfortunately, we judge John based on everything we have. Right? Why didn't you get it? I mean, you, didn't you announce, John? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Did he not say that? He said that at the beginning of his ministry. And we say in our hearts, wait a second. Didn't you know he was going to die? The Lamb of God? Where was your understanding of atonement? You didn't get this? I don't know if he got it all. I'm almost convinced he didn't understand it completely. He knew he was the Lamb of God and that the forgiveness was found in him, but I don't know if he got the whole picture completely. Are you the expectant one or shall we look for someone else? He knew he was, but he was wrestling. So he's in jail. You don't have the New Testament and you were commissioned by God to announce the coming one, the Messiah of Israel, and you saw the Messiah as more of a warrior than a suffering servant. 
And how would you respond to suffering while the Messiah was traveling around announcing his arrival? Remember how John spoke of the arrival of the Messiah. Look back at Matthew 3. You've got to see it to get this whole concept. Look back at Matthew 3, verse 7. In Matthew 3, verse 7. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, John saw, John the Baptist, he said to them, you brood of vipers. I love his boldness, right? Courage. Woo. He warned you, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. What's coming? Wrath. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from those stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the what? Fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than me. Jesus, mighty one. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. Do you think he had a fear of God? Do you think he had a fear of the Messiah? Oh, absolutely he did. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals? He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. That could be he's looking at Jerusalem and the threshing floor and clearing it out in Jerusalem. He's seen these Old Testament passages as fulfilled in the mighty one who is to come. And he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable Fire. So what was John expecting? He was expecting the Messiah to come and clean house. Wrath, fire, judgment on those who don't repent. So was John wrong? No, he wasn't wrong. But all of this wasn't going to happen at the first coming. It wasn't. Jesus was going to be rejected. And many who proclaimed Jesus would in fact get a cross for themselves also. So would it be hard, beloved, to reconcile those two truths? Yeah. While being in jail, facing your death? Boy, I don't want to give John any more hard time after that. Do you? John is given a lot of grief by some commentaries. Uh, he's, he's lost it. He doesn't believe anymore. But I believe this is a case of lacking understanding of the revelation and unmet expectations more than outright doubt and disbelief. John was probably being basing much of his confusion on the Old Testament prophecies. He knew and cherished. So John sent word by his disciples. One more. Sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expectant one? 
or shall we look for someone else? This would be translated better. It should be translated this way. Are you the one who is coming or the coming one? Or shall we expect another of a different kind? Interesting. In this question, John is asking, is the coming one prophesied in the Old Testament Jesus? Or is there another one coming to fulfill the role of the judgment? I believe bound up in this question is John the Baptist wrestling with his, with his theology of the Messiah from the Old Testament. He's, ah, how do I reconcile these two things? How many of you battle with the scriptures with those, some of those kind of things? You're reading along, ah, this, oh, no, you know? You know what I'm talking about, right? Those tensions? Yeah, ah, ah. How does that work? He's doing the same thing. He just verbalizes it. He says, help me, Lord. I need to understand this. I'm not getting it fully. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. You notice? He doesn't send a rebuke. You fool. What are you doing? You missed it. Go read your Bible again. I believe bound up in this question is John the Baptist asking for help. He's having a hard time. I'm here in jail. I announced you. Where's the fire? Here we go. Listen closely. Where is justice? Where's justice? Oh, Oh, there's so much application here. There's so much justification or application for all of us. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that in your heart. See, what we do is we force the Bible into our life and we say it should fit that way. God, why are you doing things this way? I think John was very much like Jesus' disciples and just like us. They saw the kingdom as a time where God would first purge the world of evil. Yet Jesus was there, and he was calling them to submit and die. When we read a particular passage, we must remember what people knew at the moment where they were speaking. John had the Old Testament. He also had some special revelation directly from God that wasn't fully explained. And he had expectations. This little slideshow kind of illustrates it. Let's see if it works. It might not even work. Did it work? See, it's not working. Yes, it is. Do you see it? Y'all see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Look close. Do you see it? Do you see it? Are you seeing it more? A little bit more? 
Are you seeing it? Is it getting clearer? Who is this? This is Aslan. This is Aslan, the king. Are you seeing him? Is it becoming clear? Do you see something else appear? It's a cross. Do you see something else? A tomb. Do you see it? And that's it. That's it. What's the point? You're like, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Does anybody get what I was trying to illustrate before I tell you what it was? It's progressive revelation. As you're reading through the Bible, you're seeing glimpses and you have this idea of a Messiah that's coming. He was going to be a king. He was going to reign and he was going to be ferocious. And you're reading further along in the Bible, you get a little bit more and you go, wow, there's more. And, and there's this thing on the hill. It's kind of hard to see. It's a, a cross. How does that fit with the lion? Where's this empty tomb? It's only a little phrase in the Psalms. It's a little phrase. And he will not let his anointed one undergo decay. That's a small little faint look at the resurrection. And he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Living. So there's little faint looks at a Messiah that would come that would be a lion, a king, who would die and rise from the dead. And as time goes along, as you're going further along in your Bible, you're reading Matthew 10, and you're, if you're being honest and you haven't pulled all that in from the future, you're reading along and you go, oh, I get it. I get, I'm with John the Baptist at this point. Because after all, Matthew is pointing to all these things in the Old Testament about a king, and it's going to be great. And there's fire, and, and then he dies. It was there, but it was faint. It wasn't very clear. Does that make sense? Beloved. John the Baptist's question is exactly what we should expect him to ask. How many of you saw the lion first? The cross was there on the very first screen. It was just very faint. I put it there intentionally. How can we reconcile a warrior king who guarantees victory over his enemies and a sacrificial lamb who calls for suffering from his followers? For us who have the whole story, we say, easy, first and second coming. But at the time, this was hard to grasp by John the Baptist as he awaited the removal of his head in jail. But again, the suffering was also revealed in Scripture. And the king was still the one who could bring great victories and mercy. So how does this apply to us? We too don't understand God's providential plan and we don't get everything in the Bible right away. Amen. 
And we don't know how everything's going to fold and unfold in our lives. We're not going to see that. We don't know that. And when trials and difficulties come in our lives, we need to check our expectations. Check our presuppositions. Are we assuming that God is going to do something to each one of us the way that we want him to do it? Do we follow a God that we, in effect, control? Or do we follow the God who is sovereign over every event in our life, even if it doesn't fit our expectations or presuppositions? We must trust the Lord and pursue knowing Him more. The more we understand Him, the more we will see that sometimes He just wants us to what? Be still and know that I am God. We also need to care of not, we need to be careful not to force our desires and interpretations of our circumstances upon the God of the Bible with false expectations. We are not God's prophets. We don't have all the answers. We often just need to rest in Him and spread the glory of the gospel knowing that He's God and we're not. So I guess you could summarize the message today. God is God and you aren't. And that's what he tells John. That's what he tells John. Notice the grace of the Lord and how he says it. He didn't say it that harsh, did he? (laughs) He didn't say, I'm God and you're not. Give up your head, John. He didn't say it that way, did he? But that's in effect what he says. Look, the Messiah's answer. The Messiah's answer. Matthew 11, 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Hmm. Jesus' response, put simply, is this. What I'm doing and saying is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament says about the coming one. What I'm doing and saying shows that I am the coming one. Believe in me. Jesus, in other words, trust me. I'm doing what the coming one will do. Jesus sends hope to John in prison. He points to two, possibly three passages in the Old Testament. As he points, he he looks back to the Old Testament, he brings these passages and applies them to what he's doing. By the way, Jesus can apply the Old Testament perfectly. You know why? Because he's God. (laughs) He doesn't have wrong expectations and presuppositions like we do. He knows how to apply the Bible perfectly, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He uses Isaiah 35.5. He uses Isaiah 61.1. And probably Isaiah 8.14. Jesus affirms that he's fulfilling all of these prophecies, or at least that he is the one 
that is mentioned in those passages. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus was doing all of this. So how does this fit with our Old Testament passages that we read today? Look at it. Isaiah 53, or 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Hmm. That looks similar, doesn't it? Does it look similar? Notice the then there. That really throws you. It throws you. Then, the eyes of the blind? Hmm. Let's look at Isaiah 35. Look at it real quick. This is deep today. Hang in there. You need it. It's good stuff. Isaiah 35, 4. Look at the context around it. Say to those with anxious hearts, Isaiah's talking, prophesying, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth from the wilderness and streams from the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool. What? What? And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway. And look at this. Listen to this. Coming from the guy that was... If you were John the Baptist and you thought through Isaiah 35 and you were thinking through these passages, you were calling for holiness, right? And it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it. So Jerusalem's going to have holy people walking in it? And yet he quotes and points to the middle of this. Why? I believe he's saying, I am that one. It might not make sense how it all fits together, but I am that one. And by saying I am that one, guess what he's also saying? If you look at the context, it's saying, I'm God. This is profound, beloved. This is profound. I'm healing. I'm doing these things. But who's that associated with? Look at verse 4. Your God will come with vengeance, and the recompense of your God will come, but he will save you. He's saying what? I'm God. I am the one that can heal. I am the one that can give, will make the deaf hear. I'm the one. And the things that he was doing at his first coming showed that who he was. And so you need to trust me. It might not make perfect sense, but I'm that one. And this recompense might not happen right now, but I'm still the one. I'm the one. Trust me. How does that fit with us? Oh, this is how it fits, beloved. How many of you have gotten hurt by somebody for following Christ? You've honored Christ. You're doing the best you can. And 
You're trying to serve Him. You're abiding in Christ. You're By grace, you're speaking for Him. And then you're, you get blindsided. And you wonder, where did that come from? Why is this happening to me? Aren't I your kid? I'm one of your children. It doesn't make sense. Why am I going through this? Are you the expected one or not? Are you the one that delivers or not? And he says, I am the one that heals and saves. Trust me. Trust me. And I am the one who will bring vengeance. I am just. And I will take care of all those who oppose me. Trust me. Herod will face a just judgment. Trust me. That's what Jesus is saying. Wow, isn't that great? Are you encouraged? I'm encouraged. Second passage is Isaiah 61. Almost done. Almost done. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. Preach the gospel to the afflicted. It's not just talking about poor as in those who are poor don't have much money, but it's the afflicted, the, the, out, the downcast. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Wow, look at this, beloved. It happens again to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. Why is this so important? Because if it's a fulfillment of him being the one who proclaims good news, then he's going to bring all of this. If, if John knew his Bible, and I believe he did, his Old Testament scriptures, he would know that if Jesus says he's the one that announces good news, then he's that one. And one day, God's going to take care of it all. The timing might not be the way we want it to go, but he's going to ha- it's going to happen. What is it? The day of vengeance of our God will come. I think one of the problems that we have in Christian circles is we think this. We think. We think Jesus came to die for us, so we just need to love people unconditionally, just totally let them go of all their sin, and think God's not really just when it comes to other people sinning against us. That's often where we go. We think, now listen closely. If you don't listen closely, you'll miss this. We think things like, well, God just wants me to let it go, so I'm going to let it go. I'm just, I'm going to, nope. Matter of fact, God, he loves them so much, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about their injustice, how they're mistreating us. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Beloved, that is not true. That is not true. God does care how his children are treated. 
God does know what you're going through. And every evil act will be judged. It will be judged either in hell or it was judged at the cross. The people that offend us and mispersecute us and mistreat us, they're either going to face a just and righteous Messiah who will come in wrath or they will embrace Him as their Savior before His wrath comes. That, doesn't that change the way you view those that are offending you and hurting you? Think, 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 think. Please don't miss this. I know I'm going late, but you got to get this point. Because if you don't get this point, you're going to miss. This is so important. This is what John had to know. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who cares for me. Jesus is the coming one. Jesus is the one who will judge and bring vengeance on those who oppose him. Jesus is just and righteous. It's all of that. And then, how do you think John viewed Herod then? Oh, I bet, I bet he had mercy and compassion on the one that was going to kill him. Why do you think that it says that he continued to preach to him and talk to him? I believe he loved Herod because he knew the wrath was coming for Herod. Friends, you will take persecution and suffering a whole different way if you really fully understand the vengeance and justice of God. You will trust in the sovereign God that who is judge of living and the dead. And you will proclaim the good news of Christ to even those who offend you. Knowing that God will not let any sin go. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. Those who struggle and battle and, and don't always understand your providential care of us. Lord, we, we see the things unfolding around us and we, we are so much like John the Baptist. We often don't have our expectations and we have our presuppositions and we try and we fail and we struggle to understand how you are sovereign over all these events, even the ones that cause our pain. And then we're reminded of the cross. We're reminded of your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. <laughs> we're reminded that you did not withhold the wrath of the Father 
from the Son. You poured out all the wrath that we deserve upon your Son. And for this, we are eternally thankful. We're thankful that we are not getting the vengeance that we deserve. We are not getting the wrath that we should be expecting. But we are getting your mercy and your grace and your goodness in Jesus Christ. And we worship you for this. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that Jesus died for us. We thank you, Father, that you've given us hope in him. You've saved us from our sin. And you've shown us that one day the wrath of the Lamb will come. And this fear of you drives us to forgive our enemies and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, have mercy upon those that oppose us. Have mercy on those who reject you. Even our family members. God, have mercy on our family members that hate you. God, give us boldness to proclaim hope in you. God, please save. And if you don't, help us to trust you to be God over everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.